The year is 1967. The Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It was the era of protest, of be-ins, civil rights, and peace and love. Danny Goldberg captures the mood and the influence of 1967 when peace and love was not ironic, but possible. The basic notion that those of us who were against the war said, which was this was not related to American interests, it was not worth dying for, it was not worth giving up so much of our treasure for, I, I think history has proven us correct. And, you know, the same way I think the people that were against slavery were proved correct by history. The people that insisted that women should be able to vote uh, were proven correct by history. I don't know how you could be a patriot and not acknowledge that those things were improvements in America. We discuss his book, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea, next on Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schock. During one year, 1967, it seemed possible that the world could be transformed by peace, love, and meditation. The assassinations, violence, and polarization of 1968 hadn't yet happened, and the hippies were exploring spirituality and social justice. Danny Goldberg takes us back to 1967, to the music, the acid, Jefferson Airplane, Allen Ginsberg, Black Power, and Muhammad Ali. As far as what made music psychedelic, you know, their, their superficial answer is maybe that the people who were making it were high on psychedelics or the people listening to it were high, but the actual music itself tended to have longer songs, longer guitar solos, longer instrumentals, uh, uh, lyrics that were impressionistic, uh, not just necessarily uh, about uh, teen romance, but but about um, the meaning of life and, you know, uh, replicating some of the subject matters that people would talk about when they got high. And uh, the artists that initially were known for that kind of music did come from San Francisco. There were these, there was these bands that had congregated and in this uh, neighborhood called Haight-Ashbury, uh, had houses there and did a lot of free shows and kind of nurtured each other, fed off each other, and that included the Jefferson Airplane, the Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin's group, Big Brother and the Holding Company, as well as a number of, 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 of others. And they had almost an immediate influence on the British rock musicians because music traveled fast. My guest is Danny Goldberg. He is a longtime music business executive who began his career as a journalist. Uh, since 2007, he's been president of Gold Village Entertainment, whose clients include Steve Earle and Against Me. He's also the author of Dispatches from the Culture Wars, How the Left Lost Teen Spirit. But he was there in the 60s, in 1967, just coming of age, graduating from Fieldston High School in New York City in 1967. And his new book, Out This Summer, is about that year, 1967, 50 years ago. We're in the midst of the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love. Welcome, Danny Goldberg, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. Well, let's start with an easy one. Uh, where did the term hippie originate? The story I am think happened is that there was a, a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, which is a daily newspaper in San Francisco, uh, who coined it, uh, you know, as Haight-Ashbury neighborhood uh, developed. Obviously, the word hip had long been a, uh, prevalent in jazz culture and in, uh, in the beatnik culture, and uh, I think he just turned it into a, another word and seemed a little gimmicky, but it, was, it worked for a while. And the title of your book is In Search of uh, the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea. Uh, In Search of the Lost Chord, uh, the album uh, by the Moody Blues. Uh, tell me about that album, maybe, and, 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 and your book's title. It came out, I think, in 68, actually, uh, but it, it, and it had a song called uh, Let, uh, 
Legend of a Mind, in the chorus said, Timothy Leary's dead, and it meant his ego was dead. It was clearly an LSD-inspired uh, song. Um, and I write about one sentence about that record in the, in the book because I wanted to acknowledge it, but I really just used the title because I loved the title and because it, 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 it seemed to summarize for me what I what I wanted to get at, which is that there was a moment in time, and it was approximately the year 1967, uh, when there was a balance of spirituality, psychedelia, uh, kind of utopian optimism, uh, parallel to anti-war protests, civil rights movement, and other convulsive forces in the society. And that balance of things kind of inspired me as a teenager. And uh, I feel that by 68 or 69, the balance was gone and it got darker. Uh, so I wanted to just go back, kind of journey to the, all of the things that inspired me that I wasn't old enough or to be part of yet, but that that, that I was kind of watching with open eyes and open open ears and and mesmerized by and uh, and and it seemed to me that that feeling of uh, agape you know I'm sure you use a lot on your show the greek word for universal love as distinguished from interpersonal love was really part of kind of mass culture for a minute didn't last that long i i i i would argue it couldn't have lasted that long on a mass scale but it 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 inspired me and i think i think it left a residue that's worth the honoring. So that's that's kind of it. Uh, you know, the chord means there were a lot of different things because there were a lot of different groups that didn't particularly know or even like each other that much. Uh, but the combination of what they were doing, um, I think, helped inspire uh, a lot of people in my generation and uh, left, left some footprints on the culture. Well, let's go to uh, music uh, for a second. Uh, you write about uh, a lot of the bands throughout this time, the Grateful Dead, who I was uh, surprised to know they didn't have a hit in the 60s. Uh, and then, of course, Jefferson Airplane, uh, Country Joe and the Fish, um, more politically that you, you write about. Uh, you quote at one point the New Yorker's Ellen Willis, uh, uh, where she said that psychedelic music was not so much a sound uh, as a spirit. Um, what made psychedelic music psychedelic? I, I would, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, um, I'd just like to contextualize what was happening kind of in the music culture and the business that connected fans to music in 67, and then, and then talk a little more specifically about the idea of so-called psychedelic music. There were, there were technology changes that mattered in terms of how culture was affected the same way the current generation has been so affected by digital technology. Firstly, stereo, which started out as something that only wealthy people could get, uh, became, the price dropped enough that there were these portable stereo record players that were ubiquitous in college dorms, uh, you know, like 100, 150 bucks. And the same with headphones, which previously had been very expensive exotic instruments limited to recording studios were now available at a cheap price for mass consumption. At the same time, artists and the people who produced their records had had enough time with stereo equipment and recording devices to really use it to create art, not gimmicks. And, you know, the, the album that came out in 67 by the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, is often given as an ultimate example of that. But 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 all of the people that were making records were were broadening the canvas, and they were thinking in terms of albums as complete artistic works, not just a collection of individual songs that hopefully some of them would become hits. And in America, at exactly the same time, radio changed. There were these FM stations that existed for some time, but they were mostly rebroadcasting exactly what was on AM stations or offering uh, foreign language programming, occasionally classical music. And then the FCC passed a regulation that, that uh, required uh, owners of both kinds of stations to have distinctive original programming on their FM stations. And there was a guy in San Francisco who was very inspired by the Haight-Ashbury scene, who was a top 40 DJ. His name was Tom Donahue, who had the epiphany that there was a big underserved audience, people that were listening to these albums and didn't only want to hear the hits. He spent a whole night listening to The Doors' first album, which is one of the many the Doors were one of many important artists who, who who released their debut record in 67 and realized that only the hit single, Light My Fire, was being played on the top 40 station where he worked. And there were all these other great songs, including this 10-minute opus at the end called The End. 
and he and he he got a station going in San Francisco, which immediately became very popular. And within a year, every every small, medium, or or uh, large sized uh, American uh, radio market had in what was called the underground rock format. So suddenly there was a way of exposing music that didn't have pop hits on them to this big audience that didn't necessarily only want to listen to pop hits with quick-to-digest choruses, but wanted to immerse themselves in a deeper relationship with with the artists. And certainly this helped Bob Dylan and, and the Beatles and, and, and some of the artists you mentioned. Now, as far as what made music psychedelic, you know, their, their superficial answer is maybe that the people who were making it were high on psychedelics or the people listening to it were high, but the actual music itself tended to have longer songs, longer guitar solos, longer instrumentals, uh, uh, lyrics that were impressionistic, uh, not just necessarily uh, about uh, teen romance, but but about um, the meaning of life and you know uh, replicating some of the subject matters that people would talk about when they got high. And uh, the artists that initially were known for that kind of music did come from San Francisco. There were these there was these bands that had congregated and in this uh, neighborhood called Haight-Ashbury, uh, had houses there and did a lot of free shows and kind of nurtured each other, fed off each other, and that included the Jefferson Airplane, the Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin's group, Big Brother and the Holding Company, as well as a number of, 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 of others. And they had almost an immediate influence on the British rock musicians because music traveled fast. It didn't travel as fast as it does in the Internet age, but it traveled quite fast. And uh, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, uh, Eric Clapton's group, Cream, all adapted some of these sounds. And probably the greatest exponent of, 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 of all of this was Hendrix, who who was from America, but who had gotten his first audiences in England and, and who fused uh, the blues tradition, psychedelic uh, uh, communication, and, and a unique kind of a genius to just dramatically expand the idea of what rock and roll was. Was the hippie movement uh, really kind of... Uh originated uh, in the United States, but uh, uh, w- w- did it transport to, to Britain and from the United States, or did it take hold there, too? I think a lot of it, well, the music certainly became global very, very quickly, and a lot of the images and ideas uh, traveled also. And, and um, you know, the thing about the, the ideas of the hippie movement and calling it a movement is a little bit of a stretch because it was certainly not organized in any way and it didn't have the traditional goals that political movements have but it was to me a spiritual movement it was a it was a um uh, another path being made available to people other than the religions they were born into which many found uh, dry of spirit or repressive on sexual matters or obsessed with rules or social niceties it's not true of all of the uh, branches and churches and synagogues of the establishment religions. There were exceptions, but for the most part, a lot of Westerners felt that way. Or they were offered the dominant belief system of the West, then as now, which was materialism. You know, defining yourself by how much money you had, by your possessions, by your status, your grades, what university you went to. And uh, there was a yearning that that turned out to be quite widespread for uh, a spiritual identity separate from those two options and 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 the hippie culture in general with psychedelics with an opening to eastern religions uh, uh gave some people some room to connect with those ideas and that uh, was appealing uh, uh, all over the west in in western europe and australia canada as well as the united states and and again even though you couldn't send an email in 5 seconds uh, you could uh, music and ideas traveled quite quickly, and uh, you know by 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 1968, you know any western city had a, a hippie neighborhood in it, and uh, you could hear Jimi Hendrix guitar solos all over the world. Oh, yeah, I know the station uh, we're at now, K-Boo in Portland, uh, started in 1968, and it got its name from a strain of marijuana I think called Berkeley Boo. So and, and so that picked up with the. Uh, with the, with the same ty- same type of thing of the um, alternative radio uh, really coming of age at that same time. Yeah, there was an audience. Advertisers wanted to reach that audience. Then, as now, they 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 prized younger people because they feel that's when brand preferences are made. And the uh, the the top forty radio, you know, hadn't really changed since the fifties. It was kind of the these machine gun 
uh, wraps, uh, uh, you know, without a lot of warmth or authenticity, uh, very glib and clever, uh, you know, the same 20 or 30 songs being played over and over again. And that's a valid format. We still have it today. Pop radio exists. Pop songs exist. Pop hits exist. But there was a huge section of the baby boom generation that wanted a different relationship with music. And these FM stations, uh, you know, sprung up very, very quickly because the market was there for them and they became a genuinely alternative form of, uh, of media. You know, over time they become more commercialized and pretty much integrated into the commercial media. But during that period, they were, they were quite experimental and, uh, and they, they connected these ideas that previously were just sort of these bohemian beatnik type ideas that were limited to neighborhoods like Greenwich Village or university towns, and they became part of mass culture. That's what differentiated the 60s so-called hippie culture from you know, previous centuries of bohemian culture. It's not that the ideas were new. It's the, it's the total culture that reached millions of people instead of thousands of people that was new. Ah, not, yes. And, and that feeling... Um... I don't know if it was apocalyptic. You used that word one time, but there's something that in the air was a huge change. Is, 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 would that be a way of, okay, you were there kind of as you're experiencing it that, boy, this really is a unique time. Something's going to change now. The civil rights movement had been very inspiring, and it started in the uh, in the fifties. Uh, you know, most most people dated to uh, Martin Luther King's leadership of the Montgomery bus boycott in '55, and. Supreme Court decision that made uh, racial discrimination in schools illegal, um, and and the courage of people who went south and tried to integrate lunch counters and public facilities and hotels was incredible. People died there, but it was a sense of of, of a moral uh, purity that was there as an example. There was a questioning of the Cold War uh, as the Korean War faded. These nuclear tests and the, and the investments in the nuclear arsenal was questioned by a lot of uh, people. I was very influenced by the Quakers and other pacifists who were questioning the need for air raid drills and fallout shelters and things like that. And then the Vietnam War was incomprehensible to a huge section of young America and the idea that, you know, uh, 20 million young men were susceptible to the military draft and 56,000 plus died in a war that the purposes of which were never really explained in a way that made sense to a lot of us. The explanation was the government says it's right and it's protecting our freedom in some vague way and you obey and that that there was just a, a, a rupture in the willingness of people to blindly listen to a government about something uh, that was a matter of life and death to them when there was enough uh, uh, intelligent criticism of it. So on the one hand, there was this optimism fueled by pretty good economy, fueled by a distance from World War II, uh, fueled by... Um, uh, inspired by the civil rights movement and the idea that some of the legacy of slavery was finally going to change. And on the other hand, there was a sense of dread because of the nuclear arms race, the possibility that we'd all be annihilated. And, uh, you know, the military draft for Americans, you know, Brits were not susceptible to the military draft. England didn't get into the Vietnam War. But in America, it was a existential issue for for young men, some of whom chose to serve, many of whom didn't want to. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, I think history has been kind to those who criticize the Vietnam War. It's really almost impossible to explain uh, what difference it would have made to America if the outcome had been different, given the fact that Vietnam today is a vacation spot, absolutely no threat at all to America in any way. It's never listed in, among the hot spots of the world. There were, you know, uh, some of the military uh, industrial complex types, like, uh, you know, uh, including President Eisenhower had said that there was a so-called domino theory that if Vietnam fell, it would be a series of so-called dominoes that would eventually reach American shores. That was obviously not what happened. But in the, in, in the moment, uh, it was a very dark period. Uh, people were, were risking imprisonment and death uh, at the same time that they were tripping on LSD and seeing kind of the universe uh, merging into their ideas. So these two different things, very optimistic and very apocalyptic, were happening side by side. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Danny Goldberg, who's the author of a book coming out this summer. Uh, it's just come out this summer. It's called In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea. Uh, the anti-war movement and the hippies, uh, sometimes they overlap, but sometimes they were at, uh, at a different direction, sometimes even some tension. 
There were a lot of tensions. Uh, you know, with the BN, uh, which was an event that kind of put the hippie culture on the media screen in January of 67, uh, was this gathering of about 50,000 people came to hear Allen Ginsberg speak and the Grateful Dead play and see each other and realize that they were not just isolated pockets of freaks. It was a gathering of the tribes, and that was a very conscious recognition of the fact that there were real tremendous differences about how to make the world a better place. In broad terms, there was a schism between people who defined themselves primarily as political radicals, feeling that the, the main agenda of being alive at the time was to stop the war and to, uh, and to try to help uh, uh, racial injustice, uh, and, uh, and that the consciousness and all that was just a secondary matter, uh, and the purpose of concerts and uh, hippie culture was to just uh, recruit people for that movement, and there were people on the other extreme uh, who really felt that inner search was the only thing that was real and that too much uh, conflict and anger, even if it was done for good moral purposes, was going to replicate polar polarity. And, and then within each group, there were tremendous differences, and there were differences in every subgroup. In, the, in, the, in black America, you had Martin Luther King, who was deeply committed to nonviolence, who comes out against the war in 1967. He alienated the mainstream civil rights groups, the NAACP, uh, board voted 60 to 0 to condemn him for coming out against the war because they thought it was going to hurt the uh, uh, agenda of black America. And on the other side, you had people like Stokely Carmichael, who uh, emerged in 67 as a, as a significant black leader as head of SNCC, who coined the phrase black power, who mocked the idea of nonviolence, who was very influenced by Malcolm X's ideas. Um, and, uh, you know, within the anti war movement, there were pacifists, there were people that were thinking there could be some kind of violent revolution. There were people that thinking that more confrontation on the streets was required. There were people that thought that people should get haircuts and wear suits and try to convince middle America. There were all these different uh, uh, gisms and, and, and so forth. Uh, and in the middle of all this were musicians who had the biggest audience who were inherently impressionistic and, and interdirected and who sometimes combined some of these ideas and sometimes transcended them and sometimes kind of float in between them. So uh, there, the, the, the idea that all of these people with long hair, smoking dope, and against the war were on the same page is, is not the way it was. There were, there, were, there were dozens and dozens of different uh, uh, sects, not necessarily with names, but who had different uh, views, who fought with each other a lot. And uh, that got worse as the 60s went on. The thing I liked about remembering 67 was there was still a period where there was some mutual respect and cooperation among these different people. That's kind of the conceit of the idea of the lost chord. And uh, as time went on, it became more and more fragmented. Yeah, you, you devote uh, several pages at one time to a conversation with, um, let's see, that's Alan Ginsberg and Stokely Carmichael and... Uh... And, 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 and several of them at once. And, and do, you, do you remember what I'm talking about in your book? That yeah, uh, there was a, there was a, one of the things that was happening as this uh, the magnitude of the sort of counterculture became apparent was there were these different uh, events where people would get together to talk about how do we make a better world, you know? And okay, we're, there's something new happening. Let's let's try to get in front of this thing and plan something. And it turned out that it was uh, there was no this uh, as I say in the book, uh, you know, the hippie movement, the counterculture was a galloping horse. No one no one could ride it for very long, and very few people ever steered it for more than a minute or two. It had a life of its own, but still there were these attempts. And one such meeting took place in London. It was called the Conference on Dialectics or something like that, a very highfalutin intellectual title, and it included a lot of different uh, people who were criti critiques of conventional therapy and uh, other intellectuals, but they wanted to have a panel that was dealing with this new counterculture that was happening. Sergeant Peppers had just come out the week before, and uh, so they had a panel that included uh, Allen Ginsberg, Stokely Carmichael, and uh, Emmett Grogan. Grogan was one of the founders and leaders of a group called the Diggers that were very influential in Haight-Ashbury and Lower East Side and other parts of the American counterculture. They, they were radical anarchists. They believed everything should be free. They frequently criticized other people in the various movements for selling out, and they could be strident and irritating, but they did have a 
moral authority that was part of the mix. And Grugan started out by making a speech uh, that ended up with a call for revolution. Everybody stood and cheered. And then he says, well, guess what? That was the translation of a speech Hitler gave at the Reichstag uh, in the 30s. And and it was uh, supposed to be some kind of performance or wake-up call that rhetoric was not the same as necessarily reality and that these words like revolution could be used for very different purposes. And then there ensued this very long discussion between Carmichael and Ginsburg, and Carmichael was really at the peak of his celebrity. He'd be a very good-looking guy in his mid-twenties, charismatic, telegenic, and 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 was younger than Dr. King. He was at least ten years younger than Dr. King or the other better-known civil rights leaders, and he had emerged as a real young star of the more radical black movement, especially in the wake of Malcolm X's death. And um, and he confronted Ginsburg about the uh, idea of flower power and consciousness and just said that he felt hippies were not doing anything to alleviate suffering and uh, were delusional, spoiled kids, basically. And Ginsburg um, gave this very reasoned uh, response uh, explaining his view of what young people were going through in terms of trying to transcend the identities they were born into and have uh, you know uh, see themselves as spirit and souls and to try to experiment in ways of being uh, kinder people uh you know and Carmichael said well none of that has really stopped the violence of white people on black people and Ginsburg said yes but nothing you've done has stopped it either and i you know it was this moment and there's a lot of it was filmed and taped and you know i i i so i had good sources to really try to experience what the conversation was like and what you can tell in listening to them and seeing them speak to each other is that there was a tremendous love and mutual respect between them even though they were having this external disagreement and to me that 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 was a spirit again that a year or two later was gone uh because um so, so, but these were discussions, and especially the idea of violence versus nonviolence was a central discussion on the left. Uh, I always identified with pacifism, even as a young teenager, and I still do. I still look at Dr. King as the preeminent moral leader of the '60s and of my life as an American. But there were, there were, it was not at all a consensus about this. Uh, quite the opposite. There was an enormous amount of frustration and feelings that there were other ways of going about changing things that would be more effective. And uh, Ginsburg tended to come down on the side of peace. He was actually against the uh, 1968 protests outside the Democratic Convention. He feared correctly it would lead to bloodshed, but once they were happening anyway, he showed up and ch- ohmed, tr- hoping that his chance would calm things down. Uh, uh, you know, uh, they didn't stop the violence from happening, unfortunately. I continue my conversation with Danny Goldberg. We're discussing his book, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967, and the Hippie Idea. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Stay with us. You're listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. My guest is Danny Goldberg. We're discussing his book, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967, and the Hippie Idea. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for big powerful America and shoot them for what? They never called me nigger. They never lynched me. They never put no dogs on me. They never robbed me of my nationality, raped and killed my mother and father. What well, I'm going to shoot them for what? How am I going to shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I'm just take me to jail. I want to talk again about the uh, Black Power, Black Panthers. Uh, self-empowerment uh, was one of the things that you felt that that was the... Uh, 
a major part of of that movement, and and you talk we talked a little bit there with the the conversation between Ginsburg and uh, Carmichael about Black Power and the hippie movement. Uh, what else about racial tensions uh, were, were there in in the sixties? Well, I mean, sixty seven in particular was an extremely dramatic year in the history of American race relations. Uh, for one thing, there were there were huge urban disturbances. You know, which you know the establishment called riots, which some people who are activists called rebellions, but there's no question that dozens and dozens of people were killed in cities that included Newark and Detroit and Buffalo, Milwaukee, and many others. Uh, it's not, a lot of them were seemingly triggered by police violence, but, you know, in retrospect, it seems to me that just the expectations have been raised so much by. Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech of the March on Washington, the passage of the Civil Rights Bill, the passage of the Voting Rights Act, which had happened sort of in 63, 64, and 65. But the underlying suffering uh, and the legacy of Jim Crow and slavery and the economic disparity, the, the poverty, the uh, disparity of the way banks treated uh, blacks and whites when it came to buying real estate, the employment opportunities, um, uh, the educational uh, opportunities were so different that the the pain of the continuation of being second class citizens in the wake of these heightened expectations, I think, caused these explosions. And it was devastating to President Johnson, who had pushed through the so-called Great Society legislation, which was designed to address these things. But you know, the reality was uh, it required much more, a much longer commitment, a much more detailed remedy to you know a hundred years of. Uh, or hundreds of years of of, uh, of prejudice, uh, uh, and uh, so that was that was one of the facts on the ground were these so-called riots. Uh, at the same time, um, there was there was a demand for more empowerment. Uh, the the uh, the holiday Kwanzaa uh, was uh, uh, coined, by, you know, in in in, in California and became uh, an African American uh, alternative or additional celebration around Christmas time. Uh, dashikis became prevalent. Uh, Afros became prevalent. Uh, uh, many people, the poet Leroy Jones, who had been a, in the in the Newark riots, uh, you know, uh, living in Newark during the riots, you know, changed his name to Kwame. Uh, to, to to Baraka, uh, um, uh, Stokely Carmichael would later change the name to Kwame Touré. There was a huge uh, uh, upheaval, uh, and Muhammad Ali was a huge figure. Also, he had become uh, heavyweight champion in '64. Uh, was uh, very much influenced by Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad. Becomes a Muslim, changes his name, and in '67 he decides uh, not to, uh, to to refuse the draft. He's convicted of draft evasion. It's a long legal fight, stripped of his title. Uh, that happened just a month before Dr. King came out against the war, and was uh, Ali's example was said to be a very big influence on King's decision to to take that stand, figuring if Ali would give up his career and risk jail, that that uh, he as a nonviolent uh, leader had no moral choice but to to support him. Uh, you know, this was all going on, and in Oakland, the Black Panthers. Um, uh, organized uh, primarily to deal with uh, police issues, but also had uh, uh, breakfast programs uh, for for kids. Um, they had a newspaper, the first uh, several editions of which were printed on a mimeograph machine uh, given to them by the diggers who were part of the Haight-Ashbury community. Uh, the Panthers uh, collaborated a lot with anti-war radicals. Not all of the black groups did, but the Panthers did. And Huey Newton, at the end of the year, was arrested, uh, charged with killing a police officer. Uh, and uh, "Free Huey" became a big uh, slogan in the, in the in the counterculture. So, so black-white issues were were very um, dominant. At the same time, uh, there was an enormous amount happening in black music. At the same time, you had. Uh, uh, golden age of Motown and Atlantic, Aretha Franklin, uh, you know, uh, Smokey Robinson, The Miracle, some of their best-known records came out then. Uh, you had jazz artists like Ornette Coleman and Sun Ra, uh, who were who were very um, embraced the hippie culture and who, who changed their music. It was kind of making kind of psychedelic jazz. You had uh, concert promoters like Bill Graham, who were influenced by members of the Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead to honor blues musicians. And so B.B. King and Albert King and uh, uh, John Lee Hooker and um, Slim Harpo and, uh, you know, many, many other um, 
many other uh, blues and early R&B artists were were playing uh, rock concerts alongside the, you know the Doors and the Airplane and and uh, I, I think that that, that some of the um, culture of that time reverberates still today. Certainly, the environmental movement was a direct outgrowth of people who got into communes, went back to the land, admired Henry David Thoreau, admired Native American culture. Uh, the early stage of the Internet, open source, a lot of the idealism of that early Internet were all created by people that lived in Northern California, many of whom had taken psychedelics, certainly including Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, who even went to India to try to meet uh, Ram Dass's guru. And, and there were some bad things about the 60s that continued to reverberate. The polarity, the, uh, the, the uh, narcissism of small differences on the left where these internal fights somehow cripple the ability to confront darker forces. Uh, these things also uh, persist. Uh, so there were lessons to me to be inspired by, and there were lessons to me to, to avoid from in, in, in analyzing that time. Because to me, that's the only reason to really study history is to try to tune into human things that are not just limited by the 24-hour news cycle, but that are perennial. And, and those kind of issues, violence versus nonviolence, generosity versus fear, these kind of things uh, are not limited by any calendar date. And you can learn from the past the same way you can learn from the, the present on those things. While the fashions and the music change and our bodies get older, some of these basic you know, issues are still very important. And I think today, for those people that are not happy with the current government, the idea of people on the left bridging their divides, at least in some way, with some civility to try to share and achieve some common goals is... Uh, is as important today as it ever has been in, in the history of the country. Yeah, Danny Goldberg is in, author of In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea. Uh, you admit in your book that uh, you did drop some acid, uh, and you write of your experience that it gave you permission uh, to be happy. Um, would the 67 have happened in the way it did without, uh, this, without LSD? I don't think it would have been the same, that's for sure. Uh, it's certainly something, you know, some of the reactions to the book, there are people that are just really kind of appalled by focusing so much on LSD, but I, I, I just think it's, it's uh, not possible to talk about that time without talking about the way it spread as a mass product. Again, LSD had been around uh, since at least the late 40s. The uh, CIA had experimented with it in the 50s. Uh, uh, there were some people in the so-called establishment who took it, including uh, Henry and Claire Booth Luce. Henry Luce was the owner of Time and Life magazines, one of the most powerful media barons of his era. Not particularly progressive politically. He was a cold warrior who was in favor of the war in Vietnam, but very uh, enthusiastic about psychedelics as self-exploration. And uh, those magazines ran a lot of stories about psychedelics. In fact, Tim Leary, who was the Harvard professor who became best known as a popularizer of LSD, first read about psychedelics in a Life magazine article and went to Mexico and took so-called magic mushrooms and, um, you know, that changed his, his, his life. There, the LSD had been around. Uh, Ken Kesey, another well-known popularizer of LSD, first took it as part of a government program in Northern California. But once it, once it started being used by artists and it gotten some publicity, they made it illegal, and once they made it illegal, it became much easier to get. You know, that's what happens with prohibition. It often has the exact opposite goal, opposite effect of its professed goals, and suddenly you had these missionaries, the best known of which was named Asley, and there was another group called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love who, who were manufacturing literally millions of LSD tablets, and they were available in every little town in America and all over the world when when a few years earlier you had to get it from a university or a medical facility or a government office and millions of people had very powerful experiences not all of them good uh but uh my own experiences with it were pretty good and um it it did help for me in that brief period uh when I was doing it to find myself not just by these external things of again you know was I a good athlete which I wasn't was I a good student which I wasn't but did I exist as a soul I I did and and to see the connectivity and the 
and have the kind of spiritual ideas that are associated with the great spiritual and religious traditions. Now, I don't think there's any question that this is not a permanent solution for anybody or for society. And in fact, Richard Alpert, who is Leary's colleague at uh, at uh, at Harvard and who later changed his name to Ram Dass went to India precisely because he said that the problem with LSD was he kept coming down, that it was not permanent, that, that, that it was like seeing the same movie in a way over and over again. And many of us reached a certain point where we tried to learn from the more ancient spiritual traditions, some of them Eastern, some of them you know, there are people who became very religious Jews and Christians also in the in the wake of this. So I, I, I don't want to overstate its importance. And by the way, neither did Leary or or uh, his uh, great teacher, Aldous Huxley. You know, the, the, the they always said it was it was a tool, it was a sacrament, that it wasn't actually a doorway to a, a religious experience. It was a way of acknowledging and experiencing the possibility of, of a religious experience. So, uh, but but it became part of the mainstream culture. The Beatles took it. The Rolling Stones took it. Or the most popular uh, musicians in the world, uh, most of them were taking it. Uh, music was at its peak of influence. Uh, it was it was a little bit ahead of Hollywood and theater for the moment in terms of being able to connect what was happening in the day-to-day lives of a lot of teenagers with you know and, and get it out there as art and uh you know the movies of the time the advertisements of the time the fashions of the time the art of the time uh, definitely show an effect of psychedelics so i don't think there's any honest way of looking at the western 60s culture without including lsd in it and on the other hand uh, it was just one of many many things that was happening and it's also uh, demonized, uh, demonized uh, uh, still today in, in many ways. Uh, Art Linkletter, you mentioned, you know, and his daughter and her suicide and, and connecting that with LSD, which probably really wasn't the case. Uh, but in other words, but also today we're finding uh, through biology that psilocybin, LSD, actually does have similar experiences biologically with what meditation does. I mean, so there are positive things. So a lot of the demonization of LSD, making it illegal, making it part of the drug culture, really uh, hurts something that could actually be a positive help today. The irony was that in the 60s, I mean, there's some footage of Tim Leary testifying at a Senate committee, and he was not in favor of making LSD uh, available to anybody. You know, he, he was a big believer in the idea that it should be only taken in certain settings and, you know, administered by people in kind of the equivalent of prescriptions, you know. Right. Uh, and it was the making it illegal that made it so available to everybody and invited abuse, which included people that just simply were not psychologically ready to take it, weren't doing it in the right setting or with the right friends. Uh, it included the um, contamination of things that were not really pure LSD that were mixed with strychnine or amphetamines. Um, and uh, so the the criminalizing of it did much more harm than 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 when it was legal. This is a common syndrome, you know, with with prohibition of any uh, 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 of any kind. And I think it was so much identified with the anti-war movement at a time when the government, uh, particularly the FBI, as run by J. Edgar Hoover, was so paranoid about uh, anyone questioning the government's ideas. That that they that they lumped all of these things together, demonized all of them together, and it was also a threat to some organized religions who felt they really had a monopoly on inner conversations, and uh, as well as the world of uh, psychiatry, which was uh, some some of some people of whom uh, saw the positive value of psychedelics, and some of whom were deeply uh, uh, offended by it. So it it became politicized. And finally, many, many decades later, with with the passage of time and those particular associations going, uh, there's a more rational, scientific uh, look at some of these substances. The Defense Department has used psychedelics uh, uh, to deal with victims of post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, there's so-called microdosing being experimented with, and, 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 and it's finally reaching the kind of deliberative conversation about what the role is of these chemicals in a civilization that Leary and others were hoping for 50 years ago. Uh, it's a different playing field today, obviously. Uh, but in the 60s, um, it was criminal. And that was, uh, uh, you know, a mixed blessing, to say the least. Uh, we're just about out of time. My guest is uh, Danny Goldberg, author of In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea. But I want to give a final question. Um, 
I'll give you a chance to respond to this. A couple of weeks ago, Charles Krauthammer was on Fox News responding to a poll uh, reporting that only 45% of Americans and, and 39% of Democrats were proud of America. And Krauthammer uh, put the blame on all of this decline in pride on 60s radicals. He said, uh, quote, American students are being taught about all of the pathologies of the United States and very little of the glories. Uh, and in regards to the 60s radicals, he said this, Quote, they weren't just out there rioting and sitting in. They went into the professions, the teaching professions, and they've essentially taken over. That generation of radicals runs the universities. They run the teachers' unions. They run the curricula, end quote. And Krauthammer says this is bad news because, quote, in the end, what brings civilizations down is when the elites lose confidence in the rightness of their cause. And we need a new generation of teachers who are not committed to this history of the sins of our ancestors, end quote. That's Charles Krauthammer's, his view of the legacies of the 1960s. So. Uh, here's your chant. Was the 60s and the hippie movement just about, uh, in the words of Merle Haggard, running down our country, man? I'm not even sure Merle Haggard uh, believed that later in his life, uh, given uh, the nature of his work and his public statements. But I would say that um, you have to, the, trying to conflate all of these different things is not really intellectually honest. But the, the, the biggest controversy of the 60s was the Vietnam War. And history, as I said earlier, I think has made it quite clear that, that the people who criticized the war were right and the people who advocated the war were wrong. I don't really understand the idea that uh, criticizing or acknowledging the legacy of slavery or acknowledging that a war was a mistake uh, or that um, uh, that uh, big businesses need to be subject to environmental regulations to avoid a tremendous suffering from cancer, uh, that, that I, I don't see how telling the truth is, un, is unpatriotic. Uh, the truth is the Vietnam War was a tremendous mistake. It had nothing to do with advancing America's interest. It didn't make us any safer. Now, because of the chaos at the time, there were people that were protesters that were immature, that brought issues of personal anger into those conversations, that did things that were not right. Uh, and a lot of things done in the name of the anti-war movement are things that I would disagree with ethically. I don't, uh, I, I don't think that everybody who's against the war is some sort of a hero, and I don't think certainly that people who served in the war were were, were villains. Uh, they were they were following orders and doing what they thought was patriotic. But the idea that a healthy patriotic society can't correct its mistakes and acknowledge bad things is a kind of patriotism that that I would not uh, want to embrace. I, I embrace the idea of searching for the truth, of admitting mistakes, and also acknowledging uh, the, the good things. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, as far as this notion that uh, radicals have taken over universities, it seems to me like the biggest influence on universities is big money. I wish there were more public money yeah. in universities and less dependent on how much money you give to Harvard to get your kid in, uh, or those kind of things. Um, but um, I think that the two big issues that animated the left in the 60s, despite all of the mistakes of many individuals on the left who were flawed human beings, but the two big issues were, number one, the civil rights movement, which was absolutely morally correct. I think even Krauthammer would probably acknowledge that. And it was a painful transition from a legacy of... Jim Crow, which was evil. And the other was the war in Vietnam, which there are still some people that don't want to admit that it was a mistake, but I just think they're wrong. And I, I challenge any of them to explain to me what harm came from the, 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 to, to the United States' interests as a result of the North of North Vietnam prevailing. I, I, I just don't understand what harm it did to, to us. You know, now there were people that got killed because there were millions in Asia. And exactly what individual actions would have limited that amount of killing, I'm not a smart enough military person or historian to know. But the basic notion that those of us who were against the war said, which was this was not related to American interests, it was not worth dying for, it was not worth giving up so much of our treasure for, I, I think history has proven us correct. And, you know, the same way I think the people that were against slavery were proved correct by history. The people that insisted that women should be able to vote uh, were proven correct by history. I don't know how you could be a patriot and not acknowledge that those things were improvements in America. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking not uh, to dwell on Krauthammer, but the the point uh, he's using the '60s as a foil 
and and that was kind of reason I was thinking of that quote that that which is what happens a lot. The '60s are pretty tough to talk about um, without irony. I think, as you had mentioned, when peace, and, yeah, yeah. you know, and and sometimes it's 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 so caricatured that it's used as a. Um, a boogeyman. Uh, well, there's no question. Look, Ronald Reagan's ascent to power was largely on his uh, forceful critique of the counterculture and the, and the anti-war movement and student protesters and so on. And I would say, in retrospect, that those of us that were part of the counterculture made many mistakes, and one of them was to feed the polarization and to dehumanize people we disagreed with. Uh, you know, whether it was people who didn't get high and, you know, we divided people into heads and straights. And I thought I was so cool because I was a head and not, not you know, and, and uh, in those days, straight meant someone who didn't take drugs. It didn't have a sexual orientation connotation. And, uh, you know, a, mar- a self-righteousness without having understanding and compassion for people that for their own, because their own upbringing and their own experiences in life had different feelings. Uh, you know, that was a mistake. Polarization is counterproductive. And I do think that some of the counterculture that I loved did create polarization that we still see playing out today. And I think one of the lessons to learn and talking to Ram Dass, who's one of the people I dedicated the book to uh, about this, is that, is that to, to be honest with ourselves, we have to also correct our own mistakes within the soul of, the, of what we call the counterculture. And and uh, dehumanizing people we disagreed with, looking down on them, demonizing them is something that I think was not the right thing to do. Uh, at, the, at the same time, there were people who had uh, uh, manipulative reasons to play up the polarization coming from the other side because it was going to help them win elections uh, or uh, uh, you know have big talk shows or things like that. And there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty. Uh, on both, uh, you know, on, on on the other side of this, but I'm uh, uh, I'm not a champion of polarization. I, I think we have to do the painstaking work of finding things in common with people that come from different tribes, different backgrounds, or have different political beliefs than we do, and that that doesn't happen overnight, and it's not easy to do. So I'm sympathetic to the feeling of exclusion that some people had, but I'm not sympathetic to the idea that protesting the war in Vietnam was a bad idea, it was the right idea. Uh, at, at the end of the day, I think uh, you summed it up in the end of your book when you talk about 1967. At the end, it's that really hard task of loving everyone. Yeah, this is not something that's going to be solved in one generation. Uh, one of the advantages of being in my 60s is I know I've got more of my life behind me than in front of me, and the impatience of everything has to get fixed in five or ten years is is hopefully receding, and we can see ourselves as part of a much longer symphony of human activity, and the idea is to do the best we can to alleviate suffering and to make the world better, but not to be childish and expecting everything to be better right away or uh, overnight or even in our lifetime. And the balance between those two things is, you know, a spiritual challenge, but it's, it's, uh, it's all we've got. That's the reality of life. We're not going to fix everything, and yet we have to try to. Danny Goldberg has been my guest on Progressive Spirit, a very enjoyable and informative read in search of the lost chord, 1967 and the hippie idea. Thanks for the book. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net is my website. Catch Progressive Spirit Weekly on several radio stations and via podcast. From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Schuck. Be well.